Krasvitti. Hello and welcome to City Break St. Petersburg, episode 5, an episode in which I'm going to concentrate on the road that, if you've only heard of one road in St. Petersburg, will be the one you know, namely the Nevsky Prospect, the spine of the city really, the three-mile-long road from the Alexander Nevsky Monastery at one end, the oldest religious building in the city, right up to the coast, the river, up by the Hermitage. And along the way, we're going to talk as well about two of the city's best-known churches which are found along it, the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan, which is actually bang on the Nevsky Prospect, and the Church on the Spilled Blood, just a little tiny side street away, and visible from one of the bridges along the Nevsky Prospect, that glorious, colourful, onion-domed building that really is seen on so many of the postcards and has come to represent the city. But going back to Nevsky Prospect, where better than to start than with Nikolai Gogol's short story entitled The Nevsky Prospect, which opens with the following description of the city's most famous road. It was published in 1835, and this is what he wrote. Nothing is finer than the Nevsky Prospect, at least not in Petersburg. It is Petersburg. There is nothing that does not scintillate in this beautiful street of our capital. It is full of charm, not only for the 25-year-old owner of a bristling moustache and daringly cut frock coat, but even for him whose chin sprouts white hair and whose head is as smooth as a silver dish. And as for the ladies, they find it even more charming. But then, who is not charmed by the Nevsky prospect? The first few pages of the story go on to describe the street in much detail as the place to see and be seen. He calls it at one point the universal means of communication in Petersburg. And he describes a day in the life of the city, starting with the very early morning when the whole place smells of hotly fresh baked bread, and going right on through the day and describing all the different groups of people you might see. The servants hurrying about, the beggars congregating near the doors of tea shops, as he puts it, officials, tutors, young people, governesses, all sorts. But there's quite an emphasis on the rather posher people. So he writes, for example, Everyone you meet on the Nevsky Prospect is full of propriety. The men in long frock coats with hands in their pockets, the ladies wearing long pink, white and pale blue satin coats and smart little hats. We get lots of description of the things that people are wearing and also the idea that it's very much a centre of entertainment. So he writes, for example, Here you will meet those who discuss a concert or the weather with unusual gentility and an air of personal dignity. It's a working street as well, lots of government offices there, and he writes about the people who work in them that, quote, many of them can write an excellent memorandum from their department to another, or they spend their time strolling and reading newspapers in cafes. They are usually respectable people. And although Gogol certainly hints at the seamier side of the street, it falls to one Edward German who was visiting in 1842 so only a few years later, who found himself driving along the street at 4am. I suspect he'd been to a ball or something. And he came upon what he described as an alfresco ball. And he wrote the following about what he saw. There were, quote, a number of elegantly attired ladies, some in handsome shawls and with feathers in their hats. And they were performing the strangest sort of dance, which they accompanied with bowing movements incessantly repeated. And he wonders in writing what this could possibly be. Was it a dance? But then, no, he worked it out. It was, in fact, a group of prostitutes who had been arrested during the night and were now being made to sweep the streets under the supervision of policemen. 
he writes that, quote, some of them appeared overwhelmed with shame, others stared at me and at the Izwashtik, which I think means servant, and my horse with perfect indifference. He's not really gloating about them because he writes of it as being a, quote, degrading and deplorable spectacle. So there you have it, a flavour of the Nevsky Prospect in the 19th century. It dates from much earlier than that. It was, in fact, one of the very first roads to be built in the early 1700s when the city was taking shape. It was originally known as the Great Perspective Road and along it were built fine mansions, people who wanted to be seen to show off their wealth. Perhaps they'd moved from Moscow, perhaps because Peter the Great had told them they had to, and they built themselves fine houses along the main street. And then a bit later, along came the shops and the bazaars, and it soon became the place to see and be seen. And gradually there were a lot of other buildings added, the churches, the concert halls, the theatres. If you compare it with London, think maybe a mix of Oxford Street, Piccadilly Circus and the Great Exhibition Road. All of that you could find along the Nevsky Prospect. It's also, over the centuries, been the scene of many famous events, funeral processions, wedding marches, etc. Just to give you one example... From 1796, because it was the road that joined the Nevsky Monastery right up to the Winter Palace, along it drove a cortege with a very grim cargo, namely the exhumed body of Peter III. He had died about 30 years earlier. If you remember, he was the one who died in rather mysterious circumstances and was replaced by his wife, the Empress Catherine the Great. And 30 years later, when she died, their son Paul who'd really, I think, always felt that his father hadn't really been given the honour that he deserved when he was buried three miles out of the city centre, had his father's body dug up and brought along the Nevsky Prospect all the way back to Lion State alongside the coffin of Catherine the Great and then for the two of them to be buried together. So I'd like to start then with the first of the three buildings I'm going to talk about in this episode, namely the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, the city's oldest religious building founded in 1710 by Peter the Great and named after the patron saint of St. Petersburg, Alexander Nevsky, famous because he had led a victory over the Swedes in the year 1240. If you recall, Peter the Great is very fond of things that remind him that Russia had beaten the Swedes. Nevsky's remains were transferred to the building and they are today the most sacred thing in the centrepiece, which is the Trinity Cathedral. The remains are kept in a silver reliquary under a red and gold canopy, right up by the altar, so really centre stage. And every year, right up to today, on September the 12th, is kept the feast of St Alexander Nevsky. This was attended in 1810 by an American minister, one John Quincy Adams, who left us the following description. I think, as would be the case for many of us, he wasn't quite sure what he was looking at, but luckily, he bumped into someone called Count Romantsov, who explained things to him and told him, for example, that, quote, the silver shrine of the saint is at the right hand of the chancel as you go up the broad aisle to the altar. Before this shrine was spread a large carpet on which the emperor took his stand with the empress at his left hand, and next to her the empress mother, the grand dukes Nicholas and Michael, and the grand duchess Anne behind her mother. A mass was duly held, and John Quincy Adams leaves us the following description, quote, after the Mass was finished, the Emperor went up to the Shrine of the Saint, knelt and kissed the silver coffin three times, twice at the side and once on the top. The Empress, Grand Dukes and Grand Duchess all followed in turn and repeated the same adoration of the Saint. 
the Grand Duchess Anne, a beautiful princess of about seventeen years of age, performed her part at once with the most complete prostration, the most grace, and the most dignity. Writing about thirty years later, in 1842, another visitor, one J. G. Cole, leaves us some further description. He tells us, for example, that inside the cathedral you'll find two main portraits opposite the altar, one of Catherine and one of Peter the Great, so Peter the Great, the founder of the church, and Catherine the Great, the person under whose reign much of the building was done and finished off. He points out how many amazing and wonderful things there are to be seen in the cathedral and how difficult it is to list them all. He talks, for example, about a handsome crozier made by Peter the Great himself and by a gift of amber given by Catherine II and goes on to say that, quote, there were many other costly rarities, all which were one to find them anywhere else one would admire and describe, but which, among the mass of valuable objects, are passed over unnoticed. That sums up my experience of St Petersburg, just so much to look at, so many glorious, expensive things, you just really can't take it all in. He also writes about the service, so this is the same service, the Feast of Alexander Nevsky, 30 years later, and he talks about how many candles are used during it, and explains why that would be. Quote, this burning of lamps and tapers in the Russian churches is a pleasing custom. The little flame is a living emblem of the immortality of the soul, and, of all material things, flame is certainly the best representative of what is spiritual. The Russians have so thoroughly penetrated themselves with this idea that they can never think of performing any religious act, either funeral, baptism or wedding, without the aid of torches, lamps and tapers. With them, fire is a pledge of the presence of the Holy Ghost. Hence, in all their church ceremonies, illumination acts the principal part. Nice little insight into something about a Russian Orthodox service. Outside the monastery, there are two cemeteries in which are buried some of St. Petersburg's most famous people. So, for example, there you will find the graves of Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky, of the musician Rimsky-Korsakov and of Mussorgsky. So, let's move then to another of St. Petersburg's very old churches, this one much nearer the other end of Nevsky Prospect, perhaps 15 minutes walk down the road from the Hermitage, and that's the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan. And to know anything about this church, you need to know first that Kazan is a city, today I think it's the sixth biggest city in Russia. It's a city in southwest Russia, where in 1579 there was a terrible fire, and many churches and icons and treasures were lost, and there was a maiden who said she had received three visits from the Virgin Mary, telling her exactly where to dig to find the icon of St Mary. And this was duly done, and they found it. We have a description written by a priest at the time who wrote that, quote, The wonder-working image was shining with a marvellous luminosity, as if it had just been painted. The dust and the earth had not touched that wonderful image, as we witnessed ourselves. So this was thought to be a miracle, and the day on which it was found, July the 8th, has been celebrated all over Russia ever since. In that very same year, this was 1579, a monastery was founded in Kazan in which the icon was housed. It became well known all over Russia. A number of copies were made, one of which was taken to Moscow and where it's believed in 1612 to have helped Russian troops overcome the Polish troops who were occupying the city, throw them out. The icon was deemed to have played a part in this, so that, of course, increased its fame. 
In 1710, Peter the Great, who'd heard all about this icon, ordered a copy for St. Petersburg, and then one of his successors, the Empress Anna, ordered a church to be built on the Nesky Prospect to house it. She donated gold and jewels to decorate the case which was going to house the icon, and the church was consecrated then in 1737. And since then, it's been the site of many momentous events, imperial weddings, services to mark military and naval victories, and I'm going to mention just two or three of them. Starting with the wedding of the Empress Elizabeth's nephew Peter to the bride that she had chosen for him, the lady who was going to become known as Catherine the Great. There's quite a detailed description of this ceremony in Simon Dixon's book Catherine the Great. He describes the Archbishop of Novgorod coming out of the sanctuary in the church to request Elizabeth's permission to conduct the marriage. Elizabeth, if you remember, was very much the orchestrator of this event. She took part in the ceremony too. She it was who led the couple to their places facing the altar. And straight after the ceremony, it was to Elizabeth that they first had to prostrate themselves to show her and everybody else who it was who was in charge. The ceremony went on all morning and by four o'clock in the afternoon, as we read, they were back in the Winter Palace for the banquet. The whole thing was a splendid occasion. It's said that the wedding was ticket only. There were officials and ambassadors, but absolutely no commoners. People arrived at the church in no fewer than 125 coaches, which processed from the Winter Palace all down the Nevsky Prospect, accompanied by drummers and trumpeters and guards described as wearing, quote, shiny white boots, and the whole of this took two hours. It became a tradition, in fact, for Russian imperial brides to go to the church of Kazan on the night before their wedding to pray at the icon. When the Empress Elizabeth died, it was here that she lay for ten days before her transfer to the Peter and Paul Cathedral for a funeral. Again, from Robert Massey, we have a description of this in his book, Catherine the Great. So he describes how the body, quote, lay in a silver-embroidered robe, placed in an open coffin surrounded by candles. A stream of mourners flowed past in semi-darkness. And he tells us, too, that Catherine so the wife of Elizabeth's nephew, Peter, who was going to be emperor, came every day while Elizabeth's body was lying there in state to pay her respects. You might like to cast your mind back to the fact that Catherine was given to remarking that she didn't really like Elizabeth and that she herself would be empress one day when Elizabeth had died. But when Elizabeth did die, she made a point of being seen in the cathedral every day, mourning. And Massey's description reads like this. A veiled figure, draped in black, wearing neither crown nor jewellery, kneeling on the stone floor beside the bier, apparently lost in grief. Many later imperial funerals were held here, for example that of Alexander I in March 1826, when the coffin was brought along on a gold coach, pulled by horses of course, and followed by a procession of horses, all dressed up specially for the occasion, wearing, as we learn from a letter written at the time, black cloths appliqued with the shields of the different states of Russia, which covered the animal entirely and extended two yards behind him and had to be supported by two train-bearers. Again on that occasion the imperial family came to the church twice every day. The coffin this time was shut, it was declared that the body was too disfigured to be open to public view, but they knelt round the coffin during the prayers and kissed it both on their arrival and departure. But it wasn't just for weddings and funerals, It was also the place where celebrations were held when something really 
Marvellous had happened in a military sense. So, for example, the Te Deum held in October 1812 for the delivery of Moscow against Napoleon. This, of course, was in the reign of Alexander I. He and Napoleon had had a bit of a long personal duel, really. Napoleon, in 1804, after the Battle of Austerlitz, had infuriated Alexander by declaring, quote, The Russian army is not merely beaten, it is destroyed. Alexander wrote to his sister about this in a letter and remarked that, quote, He who laughs last laughs best, and I put all my hope in God. And sure enough, only six years later, Napoleon was in Moscow, but he and his troops were forced to retreat as winter approached. And that was the occasion for this celebratory service in the Our Lady of Kazan Cathedral. John Quincy Adams was there too, and he tells us that the music was, quote, remarkably fine, and that after the service, the Emperor Alexander, accompanied by his wife, mother, sons and daughter, made their prostrations and adorations to the miraculous image of the Virgin. And then they left the building, and Alexander was greeted with, quote, three shouts by the crowd of people who surrounded the church. And we know that later that evening, the whole of the city was lit up. Just a year after that, the funeral was held of Field Marshal Kutuzov, who had led the Russian Grand Army. For this occasion, there was another magnificent procession all down the Nevsky Prospect, so the body was brought along on a horse-drawn carriage under a crimson velvet canopy. John Quincy Adams tells us that the procession on this occasion contained, quote, the nobility, the clergy, the high civil and military authorities, the merchants of the city, about 5,000 infantry and a 1,000 cavalry. So again, absolutely no expense spared. Kutuzov's statue is outside the church, actually, one of the things you'll probably notice on your way in or out. In the 20th century, there were some more moments of history, not least in 1913, which was deemed to be the 300th anniversary of the House of the Romanovs, and a divine service was held to commemorate that, attended by the Emperor Nicholas II and his wife, daughters and son. There are photographs of thousands of citizens outside the cathedral, watching them arrive and depart, and eyewitness reports telling us that on that day, Guns were fired to be heard all over the city from the Peter and Paul fortress. But actually, the photographs of that look quite poignant when you know that only four years later, the emperor and his family were all shot. And in 1917 began the devastation of the cathedral. The dean and two of his sons were shot, and by 1922, it was taken over by something called the All-Russia Central Executive Committee, who issued a decree to have no more religious services there, and helped themselves to many of the church's valuables. By 1931, shut down altogether by the Leningrad Regional Executive Committee, and it was renamed as the Museum of the History of Religion and Atheism. Emphasis, I think, much more on the atheism than the religion. It was certainly no longer used as a church. And it wasn't until November 1990 that the first Divine Liturgy was held there again. That was after a gap of 66 years. And the guidebook from the church itself points out that, quote, hundreds of praying people attended the liturgy, occupying all free space in the cathedral. And if you ever get the chance to go inside, you will realise it's huge. So it sounds like the people of St. Petersburg hadn't forgotten their cathedral. And once it was used again for its proper purpose, many of them were pleased to go along and attend. Gradually, its status was returned, and on a very momentous date, the 31st of December 1999, so right at the dawn of the new millennium, the church was re-consecrated. 
and regained its status as a cathedral. Today it is a working cathedral with services every day, the feast days are all kept here, but it's also a bit of a magnet for tourists, coming mainly, I think, to see the icon and the queue of people that are always leading up to it, waiting for their turn to kiss it. Some of them have come from other parts of Russia on a -a once-in-a-lifetime visit to see the icon of Our Lady in the cathedral, Our Lady of Kazan. And probably the other thing that they specifically look out for is the statue of General Kutuzov outside. Important though the church of Our Lady of Kazan is, there's another church only a few hundred yards away on the other side of the road and set back a bit from the Nevsky Prospect, which is certainly equally famous, perhaps even more known by visitors today because of its glorious, colourful outside. And that's the church known as the Church on the Spilled Blood, which you may feel is a very odd name. But what you need to know if you think that is that it was called that because it was built on the exact spot where the blood of the Emperor Alexander II was spilled when he was assassinated by terrorists in 1881. So, to backtrack a little bit, Russian history, particularly through the 19th century, shows a pattern of strong emperors who ruled very conservatively, alternating with emperors who were a little more in favour of some sort of Western-style reform, loosening up a little bit. And Alexander II was one of those. He tried to modernise Russia. He signed a writ which abolished serfdom and freed 22 million people from their serfdom and began to introduce other reforming institutions. But this led to very dangerous times, a lot of unrest. Some people thought the reforms went too far, others thought they didn't go far enough. The serfs were, in theory, now free, but many of them were still very poor and had few options other than to remain where they were and keep working for the people they'd always worked for. And this led to a number of assassination attempts. Alexander was nearly shot in 1866, He was nearly shot again in 1880, and in 1881, things happened. So he was travelling through St. Petersburg in a bulletproof coach, and he was attacked by what today, I suppose, we'd call a suicide bomber. The explosions were heard all over the city. And we have an eyewitness account of this scene, written by one J.F. Badley in his book From Russia in the 80s. This is what he writes about what happened. There were a number of terrorists who'd been planning this event, waiting for the imperial carriage to pass by and then one of them, Rysakov, quote, threw a bomb which exploded just behind the coach, partly shattering the woodwork and wounding several of the mounted Circassian escort. The emperor got out, unhurt. The coachman implored him to get back into the carriage, declaring that he could perfectly well drive it home. But the emperor, solicitous for the wounded, took a step or two towards the pavement on the canal side where the assassin was being held by some of the Circassians. Then, looking round and seeing that no one was killed, he crossed himself, saying, Slava Bogu, thanks to God. The assassin thereupon exclaimed, Yeshkoli Slava Bogu. Is it thanks to God yet? And the emperor, having moved a few paces along the canal, a beardless youth threw a bomb at his feet, mortally wounding himself and his victim. The emperor, driven to the winter palace in a sledge in the arms of his brother Michael, who had been following him at some distance, only partly recovered consciousness, and died at 3.30. Alexander was succeeded by his son, who of course became Alexander III, and who decided to have a church built on the site of the explosion, and he launched a competition for its design, and the result was this very Russian-style building with its colourful onion domes, very much 
against the Western style, really, I suppose, marking the idea that the new emperor wasn't going to be the reformer that his father had been, perhaps because he'd seen what it led to. Anyway, the church was duly built, 20 different types of minerals used, jasper, porphyry, Italian marble, all the usual goodies, and at the actual assassination spot was set up a canopy to mark the spot exactly. When you go round the inside of the church, you'll surely find that. It's there marked by a plaque. And the outside of the building too is very much in memory of Alexander II. So you can see outside 144 mosaic coats of arms, which represent all the different towns and provinces who wanted to express their grief. And if you walk around the outside of the building, you'll see, stuck onto the lower half of the wall, 20 granite plaques, which show the main events of Alexander's reign. The eighth plaque, for example, commemorates his desire to grant the serfs freedom in 1881, and there are others which remember other of his reforms, for example, the limits he put on corporal punishment, or the fact that he closed the press censorship committee down, or that he introduced new elective local government bodies known as Zemstvos. It really is a building put up to remember him. It was consecrated in 1905, a service attended by Tsar Nicholas II and his family, but it was fairly short-lived as a church building because in 1930, of course, once the Soviets were in power, it was closed down. During the Second World War, it was used as a mortuary and over the years it badly deteriorated. But, much like the other churches in St Petersburg, in the post-Soviet era, restoration began. It was finally completed in the year 2005 and now the building has a religious function again. Although it certainly has a tourist function too, I think it might have been the most crowded building I went to in St Petersburg. It remains a symbol of the city, its nine colourful cupolas, all highly decorated, and the guidebook itself puts it like this. The exterior mosaics of the Resurrection Church are stunning for a riot of vivid colours displayed in a variety of combinations. OK, so there you have it, Nevsky Prospect, the grand three-mile-long road leading all the way from the Alexander Nevsky Monastery to the Winter Palace, the scene of so many historical processions, the centre of the city's commerce and social life, the site of some of its most iconic buildings, including the two we've mentioned in this episode, and so many other things too. Statues, for example, of Catherine the Great and Nikolai Gogol can be found along it. You can find the cafe from which the writer Pushkin set out to the jewel in which he died. There are museums and theatres and concert halls, the Russian National Library. It really is the backbone of St Petersburg, both commercially and culturally. So, the next episode then, will leave Nevsky Prospect behind and go on a little tour of the waterways. I'm going to talk briefly about the many, many canals and bridges in the city and particularly about the palace embankment, so that walk that takes you along the river past St Isaac's Cathedral and the summer and winter palaces. All of that to look forward to. For the moment, though, I would just like to thank you very much for listening. Spasibo. And to continue trying out my Russian for goodbye, no one's written in yet to say that it's not how you say it, so I'm going to plough on with goodbye. Dosvidanya. <laughs>